A Million Likes is brought to you by Willa. Willa helps creators and freelancers get paid super fast for their brand collaborations. Gone are the days of waiting 30, 60, or even 90 days for payment. Using Willa, you press a button and get paid immediately. Every time and for every client. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. Download from the App Store today and check it out for yourself. Have you ever hit rock bottom? It's a profound experience of isolation that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. I encountered rock bottom one night back in high school. I was intoxicated in the back of a stranger's car, and while the chaotic techno music was just blasting in the background, a very clear thought entered my mind. It said, "Nobody truly loves you." I started crying for the first time in a long time because I just felt utterly unwanted and abandoned. No one realized I was sobbing, of course, because they were intoxicated themselves. But then, something strange happened. I saw a painting of Jesus in my mind's eye, the same one that my mom erected in my childhood home. I remember thinking. I didn't want anything to do with God or religion at all, but then when I saw that image of Jesus, I suddenly felt comfort just wash over me from head to toe. I had never felt comfort like that before. That was my first encounter with Christ, and it marked the beginning of my faith journey. My name is Anne Lin. I'm 29 years old and a creator. This is my story. The beginnings of my life took place in a mud hut in Vietnam. I was the second-born child to parents who had lost their newborn son one year prior. I was deemed their lucky baby. Most adults have foggy, episodic memories of their childhood when they try to recall, like further back than seven years old, something that I think researchers called childhood amnesia. But. The high tension and unpredictable environment caused me to always be on high alert. When I was about four, my mom told me the gruesome details of my older brother's birthing mishap, including what color he looked like when he died and what they did to his body thereafter. Not the best thing to tell a four-year-old, but that's what happened, I guess. <laughs> And whenever there was a traumatic incident in town, she also spared no time sharing it with me. One day, she even took me to go see this gory motorcycle accident, where two entangled bodies were just burnt to a crisp. She clearly needed someone to help contain some of that intense emotions that she had. And unfortunately, much of that was unloaded onto my tiny four-year-old body. But that doesn't mean she didn't love me. Both of my parents were loving and really affectionate, but my mother was especially devoted to me. She made it clear early on that there were different teams in this household, and she was on my team. 
With these vivid memories of childhood also comes memories of my rural environment. Honestly, I had a great time. From two to four years old, I'd already been accustomed to roaming the neighborhood with my fellow toddlers. A normal day out looked like jumping into the sewers together, thinking that it was a river, (laughs) climbing fruit trees, and making soup with the weeds and herbs that we found. It was the kind of autonomy most children could only dream of. But to us, it was as normal and natural as could be. I had my first taste of deep, guttural betrayal when we moved to the United States. My maternal aunt convinced my mother to uproot our family and move here so that our family can gain more opportunities. My mother then convinced me and my father to move by portraying an idyllic life in the States, her very elaborate and creative version of the American dream. We were in love with this vision, but things took a turn for the worse as soon as we landed in LAX. Our family of three was shoved into a tiny guest bedroom in my aunt's house where we stayed for the next two years in misery and isolation. In that despicable home, I witnessed both of my parents shedding tears almost every single week because of loneliness and culture shock and tension with my verbally abusive aunt. The woman always seemed bigger than life to me, a glamorous lady with keen eyes and a really sharp tongue. She was the kind of woman I tiptoed around, being careful not to provoke. My parents cowered in her presence, so even a child like me knew who was alpha in the room. Oppressive structure with not nearly enough grace. Nonetheless, my parents were both united in a way that I had never seen before. It was in that hole that I first witnessed my parents' profound compassion for each other in the midst of hardships and isolation. After that, we moved to an apartment with my grandpa on a street called Hellman. Both my parents found factory jobs and left me home alone on most days. I quickly made friends with the surrounding neighborhood children, who were also home alone while their immigrant parents worked long hours. Hellman was like a treasure trove of oddities. I found everything from old rollerblades to a buried gun to an abandoned couch filled with ammunition. And it was like I was back in Vietnam again, really, roaming the streets with all of my toddler friends. Except this time there was some clear danger. Once my parents saved enough money, they wasted no time leaving Hellman behind. We moved to a converted garage, got me a pet bunny, and bought a spanking new car, the glorious Toyota Camry. (laughs) Although my parents still fought every weekend, We were together more often, and things just felt happier overall. Not long after, my family got into the worst car accident imaginable. My mother was left with only a 5% chance of survival, and she had tubes coming out of every hole you can think of. She looked more like a scientific experiment than a human being. 
the doctors told my dad to start planning her funeral. So we were both preparing to say our goodbyes. That was until her best friend paid her a visit and said something that made my mother will herself to live. She held my mother's hands and said, You can't die. If you die, what will happen to Anne? She said my mother started crying in her coma. And from that point on, she made a miraculous turnaround. She somehow survived a brain hemorrhage, two broken ribs, and multiple organ damage. Once she woke up from her coma, she was transferred to another hospital where I was able to spend every evening with her after school. Because of her traumatic brain injury, she was left amnesiac and she could only recognize me. Some days she behaved like a wild animal, making noises and hiding from strangers. Other days she behaved like a child, begging to go play with me in a child's voice. I never knew what to expect, but I still looked forward to seeing her after school. Once she recouped a measure of sanity, they discharged her and we went back to our garage. The garage brought far too many traumatic memories for our family, so we waited until my mother was fully healed to move into this tiny back house on a street called Hershey. Hershey felt peaceful, friendly, and relatively safe. And as soon as we moved in, my mother erected an altar for Jesus and Mary in our living room because she's Catholic. <laughs> it wasn't anything lavish. It was just a common painting of Jesus, another one of Mary, and a picture of my grandmother, um, and also some fake candles for effect. She confided in her faith in a way that I had never seen before, most likely because of her miraculous survival from that car accident. At Hershey, my dad was also able to flex his skills as an agricultural engineer by growing an incredible, bountiful garden for us in the backyard. Everything was thriving at Hershey, but I still get these strange flashbacks of some of my parents' worst fights in this house. One argument got so heated that my mother called the cops on my dad on the pretense that he had hit her. Another argument sent my mom running off into the night, only to return sad and battered at dawn. These terrible fight scenes keep weaving in and out of some of the happiest days we've had as a family. Despite the terrible arguments and a marital affair, my parents persisted and saved enough money to buy an old house in El Monte. The house was pink on the inside and had a decent-sized front yard. I wanted my dad to recreate the garden that we had at Hershey's, so this was perfect. The three of us immediately got to work and repainted the interior white. My mother picked out some gorgeous sheer curtains and spanking new furniture. We got a new TV, a new bed frame, and I felt like an absolute princess. This was the life our American dream come true. And then, a few months into the renovations, my dad was suddenly diagnosed with stage four stomach cancer. 
and he passed away only three months after that diagnosis, six days after my 12th birthday. My mother was left shouldering this new mortgage on her own, with no degrees or English-speaking abilities, and I was suddenly left without a father. For the first time in my life, our family stopped moving every two to three years and just held on to this house no matter how difficult things got. We were no longer transients. We were rooted in trauma. These major losses would profoundly impact the state of my psyche and future relationships. In my sophomore year of high school, I fell in love with a charming boy who treated me like a princess. He made me feel needed and pursued. He once biked across the city just to see me march around at band practice. And he told everyone he knew about me and prioritized me like I mattered most to him. He was like my real life prince. Believe me when I say that this boy went out of his way to show his love and adoration. And at the peak of our relationship, I remember he held me close and said, you know that I'm gonna marry you someday, right? I fell hard. I loved him more than I had ever loved anybody at the time. But unfortunately, without the right guidance and influences in our lives, our relationship imploded by my junior year of high school. During one of the last person encounters I had with him, he dragged me to the end of a dark street and physically abused me. I don't want to go into further details, but that was when I decided to just trash myself at parties every chance I got. I wanted to numb the pain and just forget about the abuse and the betrayals that I experienced. It was a dark and isolating time. But this was also when I encountered Jesus in the back of that car. Hi, this is Capri Taylor, a.k.a. Kid Capri. Tune in next week for a new episode of A Million Likes, where I will tell you how I went from being at the top of the world to losing 600,000 followers, my girlfriend, and getting arrested. From a depressed teenager who barely had enough motivation to go to school, I became more confident and hopeful about my future. I seized every opportunity that came my way and did my best in community college. Eventually, I got accepted into UC Berkeley as an English major. Berkeley was easily some of the best years of my life. People were open-minded and respectful of each other's worldviews, and the authority figures in Berkeley never exerted themselves over me. I felt free to be myself without any shame, guilt, or judgment. During my first year at Berkeley, I started a faith and lifestyle blog called Girl in the Word to share my weekly devotionals and DIY projects. I had no plans for it to garner the amount of social influence that it has today, but this little blog laid the foundation for my current career and online ministry. During that time away from home, my relationship with my mother also improved. 
She was proud of my achievement and boasted about me to all of her friends. This newfound peace fed into my optimism for life after college. I expected to come home to a proud mother, a welcoming church, and a thriving relationship with my then boyfriend. Life was finally going to be on a stable, positive trajectory. Interestingly enough, my first year back from college turned out to be the most turbulent year of my adulthood. After seeing me graduate from a prestigious university, my mother eventually settled back into her comfortable days of paranoia and panic attacks. My church also went through a merger during that time, so my once tight-knit community just felt distant and fractured now. My boyfriend was also highly influenced by the controlling and toxic forces of the church leadership who have been against our relationship for some vague spiritual reasons from the very beginning. The church leaders would secretly pull him aside and try to orchestrate our relationship without my involvement. At one point, they even gave him an ultimatum, either break up with me or lose his job as the youth pastor. All of this was because we rebelled against their wishes for us to date. Dating was a big taboo in the church at the time. And because we dated secretly, we faced a lot of shame and criticism. I eventually adopted my mother's panic attacks for the first time in my life. I'd have fantasies about how I'd essentially kill myself. And I unloaded all of this on my boyfriend. I burnt all of my bridges out of fear and distrust. I lost my faith in Christ and eventually landed myself in a mental institute for 72 hours. In a book that I'm reading called Our Mothers Ourselves, the author wrote, We must get from others what we did not get completely from our mother. Out of desperation, I moved into a tiny studio in Pasadena with a distant friend named Karen. We became best friends. <laughs> with Karen's gentleness and nurturing companionship, I was able to heal and thrive in ways that I didn't even know possible. Through Karen's soothing presence and gentle nurturing, I was, in a sense, going through a remothering process. Funny enough, this was also when I first began my interior design journey. Because I felt safe and cared for in that apartment, my creativity just flourished. I spent a third of my monthly income, which was about $350, making over the tiny 500 square feet space. I created a coffee table out of wooden crates, bought some cheap bohemian pillows that I found on Amazon, DIY'd some wall decor, and bought a giant birds of paradise plant. I took a photo of the space, and it went viral on my Instagram. But I didn't think anything of this event and continued working at my church's nonprofit while writing on my blog as a hobby. Karen eventually found a new job up north and moved away by the end of our lease. By this time, I had already stabilized enough to endure a few more months with my mother while I scrambled to find a new job. I soon scored a job as an entry-level copywriter at a small startup 
under the oversight of a kind and supportive creative manager named Armin. Once I saved enough money to move out on my own, I sat through a difficult conversation with my mom to tell her that I needed my own space. She tried to throw yet another tantrum, but because of the self-soothing tools that I learned from my therapist and the confidence I received from my supportive manager, I endured the discomfort and maintained my composure. I found a studio apartment on the outskirts of downtown LA on a street called Magnolia. The magnolia is my dad's favorite flower. It's glaringly large and extremely fragrant. You can usually smell the magnolias before you see them. The street I lived on was the same, but in a different sense. Parking was sparse, so I parked near a dumpster every night and ran straight to my apartment to avoid danger. The smell on Magnolia was indeed memorable. Regardless, I flourished in this new space. I transformed the interior of my studio into an industrial loft using brick and concrete wallpaper. I mounted a 75-pound bicycle on the wall by myself and completely flipped the space using renter-friendly DIYs. This makeover took off on my Instagram and attracted my very first paid sponsorship. Before I knew it, I had gained about 20,000 followers on Instagram and began contemplating doing this social media job full-time. Towards the end of my lease at Magnolia, I met a boy who lived about a mile away in downtown. We decided to move into a loft together once my lease ended. We got a corgi puppy and lived the dream life in downtown. During this time, I also decided to quit my copywriting job and pursued Instagram full-time. I transformed the dark and sterile loft into a floral bohemian sanctuary with a wooden pallet bed and some overhanging cafe lights. In a desperate attempt to pay the bills, I accepted every sponsorship opportunity that came my way and made over the loft every few weeks with a completely different look. I exhausted my creativity out of the need to pay the bills and eventually found myself depleted of inspiration and creatively stagnant. My relationship with the boy was also stripped down to its bare bones and I knew that it was time to get honest with myself and stop hiding from the Lord. We broke up during the last few months of our lease and he moved back to his parents' house. I stopped working on Instagram during that last month. I didn't know what I wanted to do after our breakup. I only felt a strong urge to start a garden, but it seemed impossible to do that in the city. Faithfully, one day I noticed that a brand new building in downtown was starting to open up. I walked in for an impromptu tour, not expecting to be able to pay for any of these units. I was just curious about the space. Yet, as soon as the leasing agent opened the doors to the very first one-bedroom apartment with a balcony, I knew immediately that this was it. The place felt strangely like home, and the spacious balcony was the perfect place to start a garden. I placed my deposit that very day and was all moved in by the end of the month. 
I had saved enough for three months of rent at this ridiculously new apartment. But after that, I knew it was sink or swim. Still, I felt strongly called to garden in this apartment, and I just innately knew that God was going to provide for me one way or another. It was a very specific intuition that I had never experienced before. So I just made that leap of faith. I invested in a video camera, poured one month into learning videography, and made my very first devotional video about moving into this apartment. It was my official introduction to YouTube, and it gave people a glimpse into my story. That video gained a bit of traction, but nothing to write home about. The next video I filmed was about my apartment makeover. I filmed the cinematic process of decorating my apartment, and I shared about the moths that I saw on the balcony. I shared that God was reminding me of the verse in Matthew that said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This message resonated with many people, and the video quickly gained millions of views. This skyrocketed my YouTube channel from a mere 300 subscribers to more than 100,000 within a month. True to my vision, I started a container garden on the spacious balcony and named it Shalom. I was so filled with peace and confidence that I eventually reconciled with my mother and gave her an early retirement. My ex-boyfriend had also sought spiritual mentorship and deepened his relationship with Christ during our time apart. Eventually, we reconnected. We were determined to put Christ at the center of our relationship this time around. Jonathan, whose name means God's gift, proposed to me in that very apartment in front of the garden named Shalom. If I could go back and talk to my 10-year-old self, I'd tell her this. There's a place for you in this world. Even though it'll take you a long time to feel completely safe, accepted, and celebrated for who you are, God is going to use your story as a survival guide for so many people. Don't let anyone's opinions of you stop you from pursuing your passions. Keep dreaming big and taking risks to make those dreams happen because it'll pay off. People might not see your heart or understand your intentions at first, but that's not your problem. <laughs> Just keep creating with the same zest for life and let the consistency of your growth speak for itself. You are already seen, heard, needed, and worthy. God sees and hears you loud and clear. He's been preparing you for a missionary life that you can't even fathom. And when you get there, you'll realize how deeply that it's not about you. You'll be freed from past hurts and resentment that you didn't even know you had. 
you'll be given a platform and a voice to reach the broken. Suddenly, the roadmap of your life will make sense and God's direction will seem much clearer. Hang in there. It'll get way, way better than you ever could have imagined. A Million Likes was brought to you by Willa. Download Willa from the App Store today and get paid super fast for your brand collaborations. Gone are the days of waiting 30, 60, or 90 days for payments. Using Willa, you press a button and get paid immediately. Check it out for yourself.